Welcome to the Mormon Faircast. I'm your host, Julianne DeLynn Hatton. Today we'll explore the life and testimony of LDS scholar Lewis Midgley. Dr. Midgley has had an abiding interest in the history of Christian theology. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on Paul Tillich. He also studied the writings of other influential Protestant theologians such as Karl Barth. Eventually, he took an interest in contemporary Roman Catholic theology and was impacted by the work of important Jewish philosophers, including Leo Strauss and his disciples. We hope that by sharing the story of Dr. Midgley, we will more fully appreciate the world we live in and how the pursuit of knowledge brings us closer to God. Welcome, Dr. Midgley. Hello, I'm pleased to be here. Let's talk about your upbringing. Not everyone can say that they led a charmed life. Well, I can say that. I um, had a father that loved books. He never got to a university, but he, he, was, he was a poet. As a kid, he had memorized large portions of Shakespeare. And as a result, I hated poetry. But he was willing to let uh, let me examine books. There's one little incident that my sisters like to kid me about. When I was about in the third grade, the teacher sent a note home saying, "Your son to my mother saying, your son can't read. Uh-oh. And you'll have to get him tutored. And I went to a woman who didn't try to teach me how to read. She just talked to me, and I was interested, this was before the Second World War, and I became a conscious human being following that war, and airplanes were an obsession. Um, I had to know the name of the German and, and uh, British air, airplanes and that sort of thing, and I was obsessed with them. And what she did was just talk to me for 45 minutes and sent a note home saying, send him back the next day, and I went back the next day, and she had some magazines with, with drawings and pictures of airplanes. And then she would say, uh, what do you see here? Well, that's a, uh, and she'd help me sound out Messerschmitt. Mm -hmm. And then she sent a note home saying, get him a book. He's bored stiff in school. <laughs> so my dad took me down to the Deseret bookstore and we bought Anson Jordanoff's book on aviation. He was a famous Bulgarian-American who had written a whole series of books, and I have, I've lost the book, and it makes me sick because it had explanations of lift, why the wings are shaped the way they are, why they're, you know, all of that sort of thing about the, how, how airplanes work. And I took that to her, and she just said, I need to show you how to spot syllables and how to sound words out. And then your dad ought to get you a dictionary, and he got me Winston's, it's a fat thing, Winston's Simplified Dictionary, and uh, I was off and running. And he also made it possible for me to purchase any book I wanted at the Deseret Bookstore and put it on his tab. And then we would talk about, the, what are you reading? You know, that sort of thing. So it was a different kind. I don't know anybody else that had that kind of a, uh, exactly that kind of an upbringing. Now, when you discussed things with your father, did he require you to defend yourself, or was it in a friendly sort of way? Well, I would come home from meetings on Sunday, and he'd say, what went on in the Sunday school? And he would say, they taught that. Do you believe that? Well, if so, why? And we would discuss things in that manner. And the idea was, his idea, 
and it's become my idea is that if it isn't in the scriptures and isn't clear, don't buy into it necessarily or wait until you know more about it. And so we would discuss matters and shout at each other. <laughs> and then he'd say, well, we better take some time out and look in the scriptures to see if we can find an answer. And that's the way he was. So I was one who wanted to find out if it was true. Later on, we visited a general authority, and he told a story about once smoking cigars to cure his asthma or something like that. He'd gone in to see him and read um, poetry together, William Cowper and that sort of thing. And when we left, he said, what did you think about that cigar story? And I said, He's, he was rationalizing. And he said, you're right. And then he said, son, uh-huh. he's a very good man, and I love him. But he has his faults like all the rest of us. So don't be too hard on him for his, his <laughs> little foibles, because we all have them. And our problem is getting rid of them. So that was, for me, a, a lesson. A very important lesson. Yes. Let's talk about your first mission to New Zealand. You said you knew you were going to New Zealand. Did you tell anyone? Oh, my brother had served in New Zealand under my uncle, Charles Woods, who was a mission president, and also under Matthew Cowley. That's before sec the Second World War. And he brought back memorabilia and just left them in the home and went off and got married. And I was obsessed with them. He brought back the Auckland newspaper, which had lawn ads in, in uh, pink on the cover. Then you, it was stapled. It was like a magazine, Sunday edition. And I remember reading through it. And then I also had an encyclopedia that my parents had, had gotten for me. And I remember reading about New Zealand. And I, and if I'd had the internet, I would have been pouring over that. I wanted to know about the geography and the topography and you know, all of, all, all, everything I could because I just assumed that I was going there. And my aunt said that when I was called to New Zealand, I was the 51st member of our family to go. There had been three mission presidents. So I just assumed that it would be New Zealand. Our family was close with Matthew Cowley and he was an apostle. So I think the fix was in. <laughs> but I, I mean, my, my father was called to New England on his mission, and he politely wrote, I've got this correspondence, he politely wrote to the uh, John R. Winder, who's a member of our family, uh, and said, could you remember the first presidency? He said, could you change it to New England? I would prefer to go to the British mission. And they changed his mission call. Did they? So back then, it was smaller and more informal. But uh, subsequently, there had been members of the family that had gone there. What did you learn from the Maori people? I was interested in their stories. And the stories of how they, they or their ancestors had gotten in the church. And what I discovered was that this was a people that had a, an openness to the divine that was foreign to me. They were more ready for 
the Holy Spirit to move them in certain ways, sometimes very dramatic ways, than, than uh, I was. I, and I've thought back on it over the years, and I think I'm a child of post-enlightenment skepticism and uh, kind of a cold, calculating person, a bloody intellectual. And they were, they did, hadn't read books, they, but they knew the scriptures, and they knew them in a way that I didn't know them. And I argued with them about it. They, when my wife and I started going back, they started telling my missionary stories, and I wasn't the hero in them, like mm-hmm. she'd heard. <laughs> I was now an amusing fellow. And they had details that I'd forgotten or, or downplayed, but they remembered them. And this was, for me, extremely gratifying. Um, it, uh, I, I've, I've asked them, why did you pay any attention to a, I was just barely 19 when I got there. And here I was, I was introducing them to Hugh Nibley because he was in the old improvement era and I was fascinated by him. He, he opened the, the intellectual world to me in a ways that, uh, about the church that I, that just was eye-opening, and I never got over it. And they were interested in that, but they were also interested in informing me about their world, and that was an eye-opener, and I've never gotten over that. You talk about their revelations. Why do you think that the veil was so thin? I, I discovered, and I can date, I know the dates when I had these conversations, that they had their own belief in a high God and the, and a great council and a war in heaven and they know they knew about the creation it's different it's put together different than ours but it it blends in and i i have argued that when we got there and they those people were prepared by their prophets now the word is the word in maori is poropite which is a loan word from the English. That is, it's English prophet spelled in the Maori alphabet. Their word is matakite, which means seer. And they had seer stones, two seer stones. Seer stones played a, a big role in the training of what they call tohunga. That word is kahunga in Hawaiian. It's uh, experts in s- several different things, including... Uh, what we would call religious matters. And they thought that these Fatukura, seer stones, were means of communicating from God to man, and that the first human being, Tane, first man, he had a consort as well, an Eve, he either brought with him from the 12th heaven, or 10th heaven, they have it both ways, a stone or stones, or he went back and got them and then brought them back and then they, they, so they could keep in touch with God. And that's an amazing thing. I don't know what to make of it. So when you were teaching the Maori, they had these legends and traditions already. Yes. The brethren had had this, that is the apostles, had an interest in their traditions and their 
Matakite and the stories of what's called the Fari Wanana House of Learning, uh, in which they received a, a kind of initiation. I didn't say the word endowment, mm-hmm. but it's something like that. And as a result, those who went through this were were the first ones who insisted on going to the temple, and they were they that meant a lot to them. And they were more at, at, at ease with it than I think a lot of Europeans are. What did the Maoris teach you about the Book of Mormon? Well, I argued with them about it because I, I wanted proof texts to support certain ideas like how many, how many resurrections and this, that, and the other. That's the way I had learned, and that's the way American saints read the book, or tended to read it. And they saw the message buried right in the stories, so that the speeches were part of stories. And and they saw themselves in those stories, so that they would say, well, we behave like Lamanites. We're like Zoramites. We, uh, tr- we are a tribal people, and they were. And look at how this works. They remember offenses to their own tribe 400 years later, and now they're going to take vengeance on it, and so on. So they were very. They read the book very differently than I did. And it turns out that by the time I'd finished my mission, I had adopted that to some extent. So they identified with the people. Oh, yes. They saw it as their kind of history. It told their kind of story. And therefore, the story itself was was their kind of, of uh, story. And then this idea that they could, that this could be in their deep past, if Hagoth made it to Tahiti, that is the Society Islands, and then st- spread out in eastern Polynesia and so on, then that's where they received their prophetic tradition. And that's a possibility. Now, my faith in God doesn't rest on whether that's true. So that's that's one of those possibilities that I I, uh, am attracted to, but my faith in God doesn't rest upon it. It's been blessed by knowing a people that were like that, who changed my life by, in the way in which they read the scriptures. You say that you have a passion for the Book of Mormon. Yes. The first time that I read it through from cover to cover was on the SS Sonoma out of San Francisco, right after the Korean War started. We stopped in Hawaii and stopped in Samoa, and then ended up in Wellington, New Zealand. And I read the thing from cover to cover very carefully because I had plenty of time, and uh, you could watch flying fishes and talk to the crew and the other, uh, there were 12 passengers. But I, I read it, and I read it carefully. I thought carefully. One of the things I wanted to do was to find out whether the storyline was coherent I had all kinds of questions about it, 
And I began to sense its complexity. Now, subsequently, I have been absolutely overwhelmed by its complexity and subtlety. But I started to see this. Still, I was proof texting. Words that are in there and ideas that are in there, they're everywhere, that you don't notice because they're so familiar. It's like you don't notice air because we can't live without it. Many years ago, back in the early 80s, uh, one of my students, Gary Novak, and I noticed a book by Joseph Haim Yerushalmi. That word means Jerusalem, I think. It's his name, a famous Jewish scholar at Columbia, who would, on, called Zakor, Jewish History and Jewish Memory. It's a wonderful book. And what he does is to, is to build on Brevard Child's study of the ter, of the verb and noun in the Old Testament that means remembrance or to remember. And it's in there 109 times in the Old Testament, but it's in there far more in the Book of Mormon. And it's, it doesn't have quite the linguistic range as the Old Testament, but it has exactly the same meaning. That is, to remember is also to keep. And sometimes they're doubled, remember and keep. You think of our sacrament prayer. To remember the mighty acts of God is to be faithful. The reason is that that Hebrew word did not merely mean to be able to call up something like the times table or your uh, phone number. It meant to do something. A person that remembers does something. The wife that doesn't cook the meal has forgotten, even though she knows how to cook meals. And when you notice that, then that category of remembrance in the sense of keeping, obeying the commandments, it becomes crucially important for the message. Uh, Elder Marlon Jensen, in the dedication of the remodeled tabernacle, gave a talk on remembrance, which is essentially the, the ideas that Gary Novak and I, I think we discovered it in the Book of Mormon. So there are a lot of things in there that are obvious that we don't see. How would Joseph Smith have known how to weave that in and get it right? And there are dozens and dozens of other things like that in the Book of Mormon. Let's segue into your qualifying exam at Brown University because that turned into quite a religious experience right there. Now, first, I must say that when I got to the political science department, because that's where I studied and got my PhD, the people in that department were very kind to me and respectful of my faith. But at that point, I was worried about the qualifying exam. It's an oral exam that's supposed to take two or three hours or more. But I had been invited by what was called the Camarian Club. I don't know whether they still have this, but... This was a group of untenured faculty who met in, a, in an eating place on campus. Now, let, let me get this clear. In order for you to get your PhD there, you had to have an oral qualifying exam? Yes, an oral qualifying exam and then a, a, uh, an examination on your dissertation. I had been invited by this Camarian Club to speak to them about the church. How did that happen? I can't really remember, but uh, I was known as a Latter-day Saint all over the place, and there were people in my department that were part of this, 
and they uh, untenured faculty, and they may have made a suggestion. Now, I do know that Brown was the first Ivy League school that was proud of taking students from all religious affiliations, so maybe that was a point of pride for them to accept people from all religious affiliations. I wondered about that. It was originally an American Baptist institution, but like all universities, it lost its uh, religious moorings. Now, what they wanted me to do at noon was to come and, while they were having their luncheon, give a maybe 30-minute talk on the church, which I did. The tenured faculty could come to these, and they had to stand at the back, and they couldn't ask questions. What I did then was field some solid questions. I mean, there was hostility even in some. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I got through that, I felt uh, quite relieved um, that I'd made it through in one piece. And when we were walking back, the four fellows that were about to examine me said, well, uh, you did very well, and uh, I think you passed your qualifying exam, We have, to, but we have to go through the formality of it. Let's go have a conversation. And, you know, 40 minutes later when we'd gab back and forth, they said, you passed. So even though they asked tough questions, you were prepared, you talked about the restoration, and you were relieved when it was over. Yes, yes. Oh, I was. I, I thought I did pretty well. I made the newspaper, you know, not a nice little thing. I was greatly relieved when the banner back and forth with those fellows saying, well, we've seen enough about how you act under pressure. How did your study of Christian theologians influence your testimony? I started, when I was at Brown University, working on my Ph.D. on Paul Tillich's theology, except that he wasn't merely a theologian. He was a religious socialist, and he was a Marxist. He had that background. He had begun the religious socialist movement in, in Germany. And in fact, he had been the first university professor fired by Adolf Hitler. He stood on the roof and watched the Nazis um, burning uh, the books in the square of, uh, where uh, Frankfurt University exists. He, he had to leave Germany, and Reinhold Niebuhr is a famous American Protestant conservative theologian. He'd found him a position in New York City, and eventually he moved to Harvard University where he was university professor and could teach anything he wanted. And when I was studying him, I could go two days a week when he was in town and listen to his lectures. That must have been incredible. He also gave me permission to go through his private files. And the Andover Newton Theological Library and the Widener were absolutely fabulous library resources. David Holland, Elder Holland's son, is now at the Harvard Divinity School, and I think he's gone there because he has absolute, absolutely fabulous library resources. But I had access to that sort of thing, and I could spend, I could go from Providence to Cambridge easily, it's an hour up and an hour back, and uh, enjoy those facilities. But anyway, I, I studied him, but I also studied what was then called sometimes dialectical theology or neo-orthodoxy. And this included the 
Swiss-German theologian Karl Barth, who was terribly important in the Protestant opposition to Adolf Hitler. Uh, he had been uh, very important in rallying to the degree that Protestants were made aware of and were able to do anything in their hearts and minds against that nonsense. It was Bart who was behind it. So I studied Bart. He wrote this huge dogmatic theology, five volumes, but they're, multiple, they're, they're five volumes, but the volumes sometimes have two or three, six, seven hundred pages in them. So it's five million words. Now, I don't know whether anybody's read all of that, and I read portions of it and many of his other books, but he struck me as a more authentic believer than Tillich. Tillich was someone who drove the classical theism to its ultimate absurdity by turning God into a, th a first thing without any passion. Now, the God of classical theism is disembodied nowhere and no when, but without passions, without caring about us, what's the point? And I was interested in Bart and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German pastor who had come to the United States to escape Hitler and then eventually went back and was involved in the plot on Hitler's life and it cost him, cost him his life at the uh, just before he would have been rescued by our army, they uh, got rid of him. But he he wrote this famous uh, Cost of Discipleship. It has a different name in German. But he talked about cheap grace, and he was passionate about the... He wanted to have a religionist Christianity. He wanted to have a Christianity that wasn't encrusted in all of the art, the music, the evil politics connection between bishops and princes or, or uh, popes and emperors that had corrupted Christianity. He wanted to get, he called that religion. And he wanted to get rid of that. So religionist Christianity would have been a, new, a version of the New Testament, but it, would have, it wouldn't have been what he called the cheap grace of Protestantism where you confess Jesus and uh, you've got your seat locked up in heaven. He called that easy grace. He thought we need to, we need to be not just disciples in word, but in deed. That is, we should be keeping the commandments. And this meant that Germans ought to change their behavior with respect to their wives and children, and a whole lot of other things. Uh, Elder Maxwell was taken by some of this, and it. Uh, some Latter-day Saints have been interested in in uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, his Cost of Discipleship, and other books, including his prison letters. That is, letters that he'd written that were secreted out of his uh, imprisonment, and then were published afterward that expressed his deep longing for something better than what he'd found. He, he just simply could not believe that the Lutheran Church in Germany had supported, uh, had heavily supported Hitler. This is called the German Church Movement. 
And uh, I, I actually studied some of those people that were involved in it. Emmanuel Hirsch was a big Luther Renaissance uh, scholar. He thought that Adolf Hitler was a new revelation of God in the modern world, of all things. That the uh, a kairos, a fullness of time, had come in with the National Socialism. Now, Tillich disagreed. He thought it was would be religious socialism, and it had been defeated. That's how I got involved with Hirsch and German Christian stuff. So as you studied different religious movements, and you found those theologians that you had agreements with, did it strengthen your testimony? Did it change the way you viewed your own faith? Yes, it enlarged the outlook I have on the history of Christian faith. I now believe very strongly, and I've written a little bit on it, not nearly as much as I would like to, that the history of all of Christianity is our own history, much like the Old Testament is the history of God's dealing with Israel under the covenant. Much of it, most of it, Kings and Solomons is just the horrible tale of apostasy from the covenant, not keeping the covenant. You just have to read the first few chapters of Isaiah or almost, well, dozens of other places in the New Testament, and you get the prophets complaining about faithless Israel. Uh, uh, Isaiah uses the term, their tables are filled with vomit. See, they're not, they're not keeping the covenant. And the, our understanding of the evils of um, the Reformation, burning people at the stake. Calvin burned a heretic at the stake before Roman Catholics burned a heretic at, at the stake. Before, not after. And that became a common thing. That, that could be our, I mean, it's a warning to us, and we should study it to learn as much as we can about what not to do. History not only gives us a model for how to be husband and wife and child and so on, but it also tells us where our heart and mind ought to be and what not to do in order to please God. What exactly did you learn from the tension between secular and sectarian ideologies when you taught at BYU? I always thought to myself, if I were independently wealthy and could buy my way into a university, I would teach what I teach at Brigham Young University. It's a perfect job. And I was in a situation where I could teach what I wanted. I, thinking back, I think if I came along 10 years later or 20 years later or now, I would never get a job at BYU. I'd never have that opportunity. So I feel enormously blessed to have had a period when I could have some a wonderful blessing of, of being at a university that the tithe payers are paying three quarters of the cost to deepen the faith of their children. Let's discuss your second mission to New Zealand. Well, my wife and I have traveled to New Zealand um, many times, and we talked about going back. And my wife said, you, you know, we could go there and just live for six months, and you could get this Maori stuff out of your system. And then a Maori friend in New Zealand, I had known he was the branch president in Auckland when I was a kid there. Uh, he alerted me that there were 
positions in seminary and institute that you could apply for. And he said, you could come to the uh, uh, one at Wycotto University, that, uh, the institute there, or the one in Auckland, the you know, Lord Street Institute in downtown, downtown Auckland. And, uh, and my wife and I decided to do this, and then I immediately contacted the um, uh, church education. They now call it the Seminary and Institute, and I, I made sure that that was that was the one that they were going to assign us to. And from the, we were, we were enormously blessed by that. What year was this? Irene and I left for New Zealand in the first week in January. 1999, and we came back early in November of 2000. So they were, we were there for two years, and we were we were assigned as directors of institute at Auckland University and Auckland University of Technology and any other schools around that area. And we had 100, 150, 200 students, and we had a three-story building with two full kitchens, and uh, we even had a pool table upstairs. And, now, I have to ask, had she been back to New Zealand with you before? Oh, yes. We'd been back four or five times before. Uh, we'd gone back, and and everybody we'd met had started telling my missionary stories and, embar- and, <laughs> and in telling them in better detail. People out of an oral culture remember all those things in detail, and they insist on the truth. Uh-oh. They laughed about it. And I, I laughed about it, too. But it was also very gratifying that they could remember all that. They can say, you said in sacrament meeting once the following. Oh, I did, didn't mm-hmm. I? You know, that, I? I had forgotten that, but I did say that sort of thing. That's kind of embarrassing. Uh, well, not embarrassing. Actually, pleased me. Was your wife long-suffering about this? Oh, she, she enjoyed it. She just was floating two inches off the ground the whole time I was, nudging me and saying, I like this. This is a little bit different version than your version. <laughs> so there was a little <laughs> bit is, of teasing. Yes, of course. Well, we uh, had to select nine or ten teachers to teach the classes that we gave, provided. And my wife didn't do that. She ran the thing. She she had run a school for the Provo School District. It was a high school completion program for unwed mothers. And she'd been extremely successful with those young girls. Parents who thought, this child of mine will never graduate from high school. When they graduated from high school and were now better citizens, were absolutely delighted with that assistance. My wife was very good at it. And she was extraordinary in dealing with kids who had kind of personal questions and things they didn't want to be gabbing with me about. But we we enjoyed that thing. I, uh, it was just great, just great. And we, we also traveled all over the place on different assignments. And the university shut down for th- four months and then we had, we did other things. I arranged to have Dan Peterson come to New Zealand uh, twice and and we arranged huge, what we call fireside meetings and stake centers, where he we get six, seven hundred people at a stake center to hear him. We had people join the church after they listened to him. I'm not surprised. And you know, we met with uh, academics 
and uh, we had a glorious time doing that. And they they let me do that. Uh, they, there was no problem with that. We got to know people uh, rather intimately. The uh, we have become very good friends with the Ian and Paula Ardern, who was our church education supervisor in New Zealand, who ran the school system in the South Pacific for the church, who is now area president in the Philippines in First Quorum 70. The first time my wife laid eyes on him while we were driving in a bus to Hamilton from the airport in Auckland, she said, he's going to be a general authority. I'd never forgo forgotten that. I thought, you're right. And he is. Hmm. That's a minor thing. You don't have to become a general authority to be a decent saint. Describe your volunteer work with the prisoners in Auckland. Soon after we got to Auckland, we were in the Surrey Crescent Chapel. Our the Auckland Second Ward met there. And the Tongan and Samoan Ward met at the big at the chapel on Upper Queen Street on the main street of Auckland. And we were in the Waterview Stake. And the bishop of the Auckland First Ward, Bishop Simu, he immediately, with his Maori counselor, started hounding me about going to the prison, the Parimaremo prison. And uh, I didn't want to do it. And I, I kept saying, well, I don't think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I gave every excuse. And it didn't do any good. They, uh, an, an old fellow, Mutu Wehongi, who had been called by Charles Lloyd, who was the mission president in New Zealand, to go to two prisons in Auckland. Uh, Lloyd had gone home and forgotten to release him, and he just kept going, and he'd gone through about three more mission presidents. and was still going. He was in his 90s, and he was a legend. He called us once and said, you're going to the prison. Meet me at my place at such and such time, and we'll go out. We went out, and he introduced us to the chaplain. We got permission to go to this unit that we attended. We went one afternoon each week to a sex offenders unit. I'm not going to compromise any of the fellows that we have. We have members and non-members and so on there. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to read Spencer Kimball's Miracle of Forgiveness. And the, the, the old Maxwell Institute, I had them send a case of the books over. So we distributed them, and we, we went through them chapter by chapter. And my wife would say, I can't go down there and talk about this with them. They wore the books out. I would start with just a little two-minute thing, and then we'd start a discussion. They never quarreled over whether the interpretation of the Scripture was correct. I sometimes would try to soften the message, because that's a tough book. And they would say, if we hadn't done what he says not to do, and if we'd done what he says to do, we wouldn't be here. So there's no point in trying to soften it. And my wife and I discovered very soon that we would be explaining, both of us would be explaining to these fellows that those of us who are Latter-day Saints understand this sort of thing this way rather than that way, for those who weren't Latter-day Saints. And quite a few times when we did this, they would say, Elder or Sister, 
don't you realize that there's only one of us in this thing besides you two who haven't been excommunicated? And yet you're referring to us as Latter-day Saints. And I would have to say, that's a temporary thing from our point of view. And they said, well, it's obvious that that's the way you see it. And my wife and I talked about this a lot. In listening to those fellows struggle with their problems, we ended up, from their point of view, talking about our own struggles. And they sometimes would say, you realize that you don't see a difference between the two of you and and us. And we had to say, that's right. In fact, at, the, at one point early on, a fellow said, Elder, right, interrupted what was going on and said, Elder, I've got to tell you, you're not a preacher. And I said, I'm nothing if not a preacher. And he said, no, you have never once referred to us as scumbags and as totally depraved sinners. Instead, you go right on as if we're all in the same situation together, just at different stages. And I said, you have understood me exactly right. And my wife said, that's the way I see it too. And I can't see it other way. If we keep making the mistake of talking about we who are Latter-day Saints, you'll just have to live with that. We talked about this a lot and we decided that uh, we've been transformed by this. And we had come to understand things about ourselves that we hadn't, we hadn't considered before. So you learned a lot about forgiveness during your work in the prison. You've also served in callings in district presidencies, branch presidencies on the high council. What has the atonement of Jesus Christ come to mean to you personally? Well, when we use the word, the English word atonement, it doesn't mean at one moment. It appears a huge number of times in the Old Testament. In the King James Version, it only appears once in the New Testament. And it translates a Greek word that doesn't have anything to do with what the word atonement is translated in Hebrew. Now, the Hebrew word for the Day of Atonement is Yom Kippur. The term Kippur means to cover as Noah covered the ark with pitch to make it waterproof. And on Yom Kippur, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies with an animal blood and smeared them on the horns of the altar and begged God to forgive Israel. But those Levitical priests could never offer an offering in righteousness. They were always getting it wrong. There was always apostasy or hypocrisy and all that sort of thing. And so God himself, I believe, came down. This is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H with the vowels in it, Yahweh, our Jehovah. And we get that through German and then into English. He came down. He was God incarnate. And now he was mortal. He could, had to eat and all that that implies. He could get slivers under his fingernails in his father's workshop. He could be stoned. If you think of the portion of the third chapter of Mosiah, where it says, 
the Lord God Almighty, that's got to be Yahweh, will come down, I'm paraphrasing, and he will be an exorcist. He'll cast out demons. And he will be a, a healer. He'll heal the sick. He'll raise the dead. He'll teach. And his atoning blood will deal with our sins. And then he will be resurrected. So atonement for me is the whole story, the gospel. The good news is that God has overcome the world by a victory over death in which he didn't call down firepower to destroy the wicked Jews or, or the Roman Empire, but he submitted to them. And then, much to their surprise, was resurrected. Dr. Midgley, I'm going to end with one final question, and that is, can you know for sure? Well, we in the church place a great deal on our expression of certainty about what we know about the gospel. And we do this by talking about having a testimony, and we talk about getting a testimony. I'm uncomfortable with that talk. I don't find any place in Scripture where it says you have a testimony or get one. What you do is testify. Well, what about your faith? And what is testifying about the faith? It is like testifying in court about the reasons you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, I would prefer that we stress faith rather than the word testimony. I think it, it, I mean, I know I hear people saying, I have a firm testimony, but I have this question, and it's really nagging me, and I'm about to leave the church. And I think, well, it's, it's some question about uh, the age of the earth or about what some apostles said or about uh, Joseph Smith and polygamy or Sir Stones or something like that. Is that unraveling your testimony? What, do you have faith? in God. And if you do, why? You must have a reason. Now, I, I, I see the things I write, even though I don't use, I am now testifying, I see the things I write as my effort to testify, to give reasons for the work. I mean, we give rational arguments. We have experiences. We, we talk about these experiences. Now, some things, uh, we, we don't need to talk about this with every person. I may not have ever mentioned this. I, I went out, my, my dad and I plant, had an orchard in Bountiful, planted a thousand peach trees. We used to irrigate. And I remember out one night and saying in the driveway, and we'd been talking about things, and he was off somewhere else. And I looked up at the stars, beautiful night, and there wasn't ambient light around because they were very, they looked like they were bigger than usual. And I thought, God is in here with us and cares about us. And I had this overwhelming emotional experience. Now that isn't a proof. I have come to see that as the workings of the Holy Spirit with me to nudge me Sometimes it gives you, a, I think, a 
a boot in the bum, as you know, as well as consolation and all the other things that the Holy Spirit does. And I've always felt that this business of of God not being temporal or spatial mean identify something that doesn't make a difference to me. Why? I mean, it, the stressing the sovereignty of God and the power of God. Those aren't his primary attributes, even though he is Lord God Almighty. He is that because he's a friend and loving. If we experience that, then we're on our way. Thank you, Dr. Midgley. Well, I fully enjoyed this. This episode of the Mormon Faircast is produced by Tom Hatton. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You can support this podcast by subscribing to it in iTunes and by rating it and writing a review. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org or you may join the conversation at fairblog.org.